Hello and welcome to Strangers Stopping Strangers, podcast number 45. A big welcome back to anyone who's returning and thanks for stopping in to anyone who's new this week. Well, this week's podcast is a bonus episode and it is filled with so much love and stories and music and well wishes that it has the content to be three podcasts. Gerilyn Brandialice and I met last New Year's Eve through a mutual friend, Deb Solomon. Hey, Deb. And uh, the rest was history. Many of you know Gerilyn, who's a true sister in the Grateful Dead family, from the beautiful book she created, The Grateful Dead Family Album, which was first released October 1st, 1989. Gerilyn's been working on a project digitizing The Grateful Dead Family Album with the ability to update it. The project's evolved into a community called The Wheel, and it's with and for the Deadhead family, past, present, and future. The wheel's been up in an intro phase, and while the spokes are still just coming together, today on August 1st, 2017, the 75th anniversary of the birth of Jerry Garcia, Gerilyn decided it was time to cover just a little more ground. The wheel can be found at www.thegdwheel.com www.thegdwheel.com Check it out. The more deadheads sharing their stories and music and what's going on, the more fun it'll be for the rest of us. After the conversation with Gerilyn, I was really honored to get to talk to a few friends of Jerry's who had some incredibly heartfelt stories to share. So we get to hear a little bit from Sam Cutler, from Susanna Millman, a return podcast guest, and from Dennis McNally, um, all paying some tribute for Jerry's 75th, a real true honor to hear and share. So as always, I hope everybody enjoys and thanks for stopping by and uh, we'll catch you in a couple weeks. Well, Gerilyn, welcome to Stranger Stopping Strangers. Well, thanks, Stacey. It's good to be here finally. I know. we. Uh, this has been in the works for a while. We, I have to admit to everyone, we're no longer strangers anymore. We were no, one. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for about five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Long lost family. I call you Auntie Gerilyn when I come to California. I have to see Auntie Gerilyn. That's right. So well, are, by the way, your, your, your actual auntie is a really delightful person, by the way. Oh, shout out Auntie She's Anna lovely. Mark. Hey, they listen there you to the go, podcast. Yeah. Hey, you there. <laughs> What's up? Hey. No, I've been dying to get her on, but she told me all the good stuff has to stay in the vault till a few more people die. So, um, her and so, I both, we got that in common. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll share some of the, uh, some of the to be shared bits and then we'll keep some stuff for the, the future archives because this will be the first of, of many conversations, I'm sure. So we'll, uh, oh yeah, we'll, we'll no start doubt. with. PG part, and then we can, we can, you know, test the waters. Well, you know, I start most all the podcasts, and your story is, you know, a longer and stranger trip than most, but I want to ask, beginning, like, how did you get here? Tell me, you know, just a little bit about the early days, and, uh, you know, when you came, when you got to San Francisco, and sort of jumping on the bus. Okay, well, let's see, it was more like we jumped off. I jumped off where I was living in Southern California because it started to get too weird to live there. Uh, the Vietnam War was happening, and and well, it's, it's kind of it all started back in 19 what is it 1963 when they shot Kennedy, and we didn't have a president anymore. 
everything changed radically after that. And then I had a baby when I was 16, so that pretty much changed my life dramatically. So I left high school and I was on my own and lived with my mom and stuff. And um, I got married and then we were living in this, the rock and roll thing. The Beatles happened. I mean, I was part of the Pump House gang down in La Jolla. And um, so we would have these parties, you know, keg parties and stuff like that. And the Beatles hit. And so that was a big deal. And and then the L.A. scene started happening. And L.A. was a hop, skip, and a jump from San Diego. So we started going to, up there. So we started going to L.A. And then my daughter's godfather... We were we were actually a bunch of us were smuggling weed from from uh, Mexico at that time, and then my daughter and my friend and my her baby were all kind of involved, and that we actually would you know go around in the Mercado, and well the guys loaded the pot up in the car, and then we would drive the with our cranky crying babies and a bunch of merchandise <laughs> in the Mercado <laughs> in the back seat. We would drive the car through the border. But, you know, you got to remember this is back in 1964 and 1965. They weren't looking very closely back then. So it wasn't that dangerous. It wasn't at all dangerous, actually. I mean, once the cops got onto their, the federales and it was mostly the border, border people, once they caught onto the marijuana and the tires scheme, then uh, we moved on to hollowing out surfboards and there were more elaborate methods taken. But at any rate... So we started, our activities started to attract attention in town. And, um, and plus we were looking kind of weird and growing our hair long. We were a bunch of radical surfers and we had a bad attitude, some of us. And Tom Wolf came and wrote a book about us. And, and, wow. uh, you know, so that was that. It was the early 60s in the, you know, La Jolla and uh, at the Pump House Gang at Wind and Sea Beach. And then my, and so things started getting weird and, one time we brought this load, and then I walked out of the house. I didn't smoke pot or anything in those days. But anyway, long story short, it got really hot for us, and we all fled. And my daughter's godfather had already moved up to San Francisco where he had family because he was the leader of the pack, and they were actually after him first. So he bailed first before they caught him, and then the rest of us followed in short order. And that was in 1965. And that's yeah. when I first came to San Francisco, which was in full swing, right right in the beginning of the ballrooms and right in the beginning of the whole thing. I think, let's see, my daughter had turned a year, she was a year and a half old. It was probably actually early 1966 when we landed in San Francisco, now that I think about it more. It was early 1966 when I got into San Francisco. And man, I knew I was home. Yeah. I loved the city from the minute I set foot in it. I was so happy to be here. And then we just got, there was the ballrooms. We went to the Avalon all the time. We went to the Fillmore. It was really great. They had, I was at the first Trips Festival out of um, Longshoreman's Hall. That was amazing. Um, and then sometime in early 1967, like probably, probably, I think we're, I keep thinking back on this stuff lately for other reasons of my own. And I think what happened is we went back to San Diego for the holidays at the end of 1966, I discovered I was pregnant with my second kid. And so I decided I wanted to stay there in San Diego and have the baby down there. So he was born the following August. His 50th birthday is coming up in the, like right quick here. Yeah. Um, 
So we just stayed in San Diego. That's kind of how I remember it. You know what they say about the 60s, if you remember it, you weren't there, you know? <laughs> so, so, I, I'm sitting so, here so thinking like, we could do like, a podcast on each on each decade, right? Like we could we could yeah, easily do an hour with music man. and stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is... Yeah, uh, I absolutely is... think that's a great idea. I think that's a fantastic idea. Because you know what you can play also? You can play parts of shows where the Grateful Dead and the Quicksilver and the Airplane, all these different people played on shows, and sometimes at the end of the show, they would all be on stage together. There's a few times that that happened. And I'm thinking, because the Grateful Dead, not that those other bands were ever recorded with the degree that the Grateful Dead were recorded, which was, like, not even, you know. I mean, the Grateful Dead, I think, is probably the most recorded band in the history of rock and roll. Absolutely. I can't even imagine it. I can't even really imagine another band that probably has more tapes of its performances than the Grateful Dead. I would be interested to find out, actually. Oh, no I really way. Don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't think no anybody can hold a candle no to them, No way. No way. When no I look way. on the archives um, where I get my music, there's over 10,000 shows to choose from. And, you know, it's funny. Like, I'll ask people, I'm going to pick a couple songs. And really, uh, you know, for this podcast, picking the songs is the hardest part. And I can tell with you, picking the stories is going to be, like, equally as challenging. And I love how we just... Ended up. I mean, the songs. How could you pick four well, songs from? You if know, you did it, you years? did it. You did it. What really was interesting to me, and I didn't say this to you a little bit ago when we were talking, but it was interesting to me that you put things in chronological order because I think that that's the only way to really make sense of it. That's why the book got done that way, except for one little dinky piece where we all of a sudden we jumped to Bill Graham going to Russia or something. I don't know. But so, <laughs> at any rate. Um, the book is designed like all family albums in chronological orders because families start when people get married and then they have babies and blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah, so that's how we blah. decide, you know, because it just came to us at some point in production. Like, like, wait a minute, the coolest way to do this would be in chronological order, starting out with the band members' parents and getting their baby pictures and then, you know, da, 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 da. So that's how that went on. And I often get asked, like, how did you get all those baby pictures? And I'm like, from their moms. Yes, <laughs> of course. We're like, sure. That was got... pretty easy. Uh, I mean, I mean, actually, I did. I asked bad members. I mean, I just, that's how I got all the pictures. I just simply asked people for them. It was, you know, it was five years of rounding up pictures before we put the book together. A lot of people, like Barlow in particular, thought that I was just like, you know, never going to get it done. That it was just some kind of trip I was on, you know. Well, <laughs> you sure gave like, birth to were, it, man. You gave birth I to know, it. I know, man. It's, it's it a actually, lot out there. It actually there. happens. It no, happens. I'm, I'm pretty tenacious. I don't bullshit around. When I set out to do something, I get it done. That's sort of what I'm known for. You know, I pride myself on that. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's why this, that's why this new project, the, the new project uh, has taken quite a while. But you know what? That's the way it goes, you know. And traditionally, in Grateful Dead life, everything takes time. They never hurried anything. As far as I can remember, there was never any rush to do anything. It all kind of just one thing rolled into another, and as it evolved and, you know, grew and changed and went from country to electronic to the blues and back, and, you know. I mean, it was always kind of like that from the beginning. They, I've often seen the band described as a blues band. But and then they kind of moved into country with Working Man's Dead and and then with the beautiful songwriting of Hunter. Oh, they touched on everything. Tradition. 
Yeah, jazz, yeah, well, blues, it, rock, it's everything. Psychedelia, yeah, well, yeah, it's because everything. that's yeah, just, because that that's of Jerry's love, wide love of all you know, jazz and bluegrass and this and that and all that. And Hunter's experience with the the lyrical world of you know other cultures and Rilke and uh, you know other great writers and whatnot. It's just it's a match made in heaven, really. You know, huh? I think about that a lot, and not to discount Barlow and Weir. And other songwriters, you know, including Mickey or any of the other people in the band, or as a group, there's a few songs I wrote as a group. It's of their intelligence, I think, is really a big factor. And I think the intelligence of the the music. A friend of mine who's not a skeptic exactly, but like kind of poo-pooed deadheads in their whole trip, I convinced him to come and see the Dark Star Orchestra one time because, you know, the Grateful Dead had long since... I didn't meet this guy until 2005. And so I took him to see a Dark Star Orchestra show. And he stood in the back of the hall, and after a song or, or so, he said, this is really intelligent music. <laughs> no, and I said, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's why. I, and it's also very spiritual music. Yeah, so let's. I want to talk about some music. I want to talk about some music. You know, again, we're not going to be able to hit all of the years and, and all of the songs and all of the decades. But the first song chronologically be selected that you had said Sugar Magnolia. Like, that is just a special song with an awesome story. So 1978 is where the musical journey on this podcast is going to begin. You know, we want to hear the juice. We want to hear the story. Tell us a little bit about um, why Sugar Magnolia was first up in the wheelhouse. Well... Sugar Magnolia was written about a particular person, a woman named Frankie, who was a dancer that hooked up with the Grateful Dead. She, at the time, she'd been a dancer with a dancer with Jimi Hendrix or something. Not, I don't know how much she had dancers, but back in the '60s, people had, you know, there were dance shows. I think people that were dancing, but there was the one called Hullabaloo and one called Shindig. And Frankie danced on one of those shows, or maybe both of them. Anyway, she met up with the dead. She danced with Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, too. So she met up with the dead and kind of got taken along for the ride back to California. She met up with them on the East Coast. She ended up being Bobby's girlfriend. It was Bobby for quite a long time, and that song's written about her. She was a really amazing, incredible person. She was, she was something. Her name was Frankie. When she danced, her name was Judy Azara. And she was Ooh. somebody that I, as a kid, I, as a kid, watched her. She was like a lead dancer on these dance shows that I used to watch, watch in the early 60s. And then, like I said, she got hooked up with our guys and came out here. She passed away some years ago from, I think, multiple sclerosis or something like that. But she was with Weir for quite a long time, and, and they were a great couple. And we all loved her a whole lot. And Sugar Magnolia really talks about who, that's who Sugar Magnolia was, was Frankie. Uh, so, anyway. But, no, that's awesome. I feel like there's... I mean, legions and legions of women out there who, you know, when the song busted out, everybody wants to pretend they're Sugar Magnolia, you know, just the whole. Yeah, there was a real, there was a real Sugar Magnolia. And she could jump like Willie's and four-wheel drive because she was a professional dancer. She was oh, an incredible awesome. person to watch in. She used to dance on stage because we used to all dance on stage. The band let us all dance on stage. They didn't. There was no move to try to make us do anything else. They were happy. They, there's a lot, a couple of three girls who would dance right in and amongst the musicians like Rosie and, and, um, what Mary Ann Mayer, who ended up becoming Sister Charles. She's been a nun for forever and ever. I'm like, yeah, look what you guys did to her. She's a nun now. You know, <laughs> like, so, anyway, so, but she was a really, she also was a part of the airplane entourage. She was a really beautiful woman and an incredible photographer. There's a lot of her pictures. I think she was the official photographer on Europe 72. 
because um, most of the pictures in the book at that part of my book are from Marianne Mayer. But, um, yeah, she was amazing. And then there's Noelle. She danced on stage. And the girl that danced on, and, and what's her name, Renee, she danced on everybody's stage. So, yeah, there was a lot of dancing right on stage in front of the band, behind the band. And it was so much fun. It was so great. Well, let's go yeah, back. Let's go back to 1978. Yeah. Let's uh, let's uh, let's tip our hats to Frankie and 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 all of the uh, the girls on stage and the real Sugar Magnolia. And this this one, I know this is just my favorite. It's uh, Winterland. It was 1978 into 79, and I'm gonna play the intro and the Sugar Magnolia because I mean you just can't hear this without just bust. You can't hear it without smiling. You can't hear it. Well, I, just... I was there, too. I was there. I was on stage at that New Year's Eve show in 78, 79 at Winterland. I can almost smell the room, you know? <laughs> well, let's I mean, that. seriously, it was magical, you know? It was really magical. It was amazing. It was, you can feel the energy was intense. It was so wonderful to all be together. Sometimes I would think that the sky was going to open up, Winterland, the ceiling would open up, and we would all go up and be with the mothership, you know, <laughs> like really high. It's like, oh, I guess tonight wasn't the night. Okay, bye. Let's go home. You know, you have to come back to Earth now. Let's play it. I can definitely pick up the vibes on that. And then we're going to come back, and uh, we have a couple more songs and a lot more stories. Now, ladies and gentlemen, yes, a momentous occasion as we cruise into the 1980s here at Winterland in San Francisco, 1978, going on 1981, what you see before you is a 10, no wait, 12, 12 foot long burning ember of marijuana. Yes, let us begin the countdown.
back from New Year's Eve. It is now 1979 or really 2017, but I wish it was 1979. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, the 70s are great. Absolutely great. Well, I love in the intro yeah. from the sh- the song we just played too, how he says we're going into the '80s, but it's just '79. Like that just shows to me the fun, right? Like they're just fucking with it everybody was, oh, all yeah. the time. It was, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, look, we went, look, we went to Egypt in 1978. How cool is that? Uh, you know, and that's then a whole kind other of like, yeah, then they can't. Well, in the '80s, I think that's when the, the Warfield shows happened. It was in 1980. And that 1980 run is what our our next pick is. But I want to talk a little bit about the topic. So when we were going through the songs and and trying to pick songs, and again, it's it's impossible to pare it down because there's so many songs. Um, but we we had to put the wheel in because you know one of the reasons you and I met was because our friend Deb Solomon, hey Deb, uh, introduced us and thought we would have fun meeting each other. And you were working on a project. Yeah, I wanted to just ask you a little bit about it. I mean, it's, you know, just being released. Tell us just what, what we can know about the, the wheel, and then uh, and then we'll go back to 1980 and, and play the show from the Warfield. Okay. The Grateful Dead family album was created and published in 1989. And over the years, it's been offered to me to turn it into various electronic products, and it hasn't happened for whatever reasons of Recently, I just decided that because technology had advanced to a point where I could put this thing online on a website for free without having to round up a budget or get any support or anything like that, because it had been so long. The book had been, the book had even gone out of print in the interim years. Talked to a couple of friends, I talked to a couple of friends of mine down in Silicon Valley and asked them if they could help me do that. And they came back to me with this amazing proposal to use my book as a catalyst to create a whole electronic world based around the family album. And they tell me, well, this is all a lot of, like, wow, this is pretty cool. But And, and also create a place where you could bring everything in the Grateful Dead universe to one central place and people could access it. And I told them that sounded really ambitious and I just wanted to get my book online. And with comments, people could comment on it and we could add, add to it. I, want, I wanted to make it digital. I wanted to make it into a digital product so that it could be manipulated and 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 added to and whatnot like that. That I'm then I talked to a, a friend of mine who was actually the first editorial assistant for the book who had gone on to be a creator of electronic games and this and that. His name's Dante Anderson, and I asked Dante if he would help me with it, and he said that sounded great. And so he started helping me page by page. It took us about a year to put up the two hundred and 56 pages of my book in a digital format with a comment field and a place where we've already added new stories to the first 25 years of the Grateful Dead's history. We, we created something that we can make historically more significant and add video to, which we've already done, and more pictures and more, you know, more everything. That's what we did. And, uh, it was decided that after that year went on, like it's sometime last year, that we should have a social network attached to it. And so we started to create a social network, and that's what The Wheel is. The Wheel is a, a place where you can gather everything about the Grateful Dead. It's like, it's a, not steal your Facebook, but it's a so, regular social network like Facebook. The difference is, is that we're archiving everything. All the stories that we're leaving there as people that are in the Grateful Dead family album and fans of the Grateful Dead. It's a site for deadheads from the Grateful Dead family 
It's four deadheads, five deadheads. Centralizes all the Grateful Dead information. It creates a living legacy archive. And the spokes of the wheel, I decided to call it the wheel one day because it seemed to make sense. You put the book in the middle and then there's spokes that come off of it and all the spokes represent the we are everywhere aspect of the Grateful Dead community. The book is a central reference and all the people that are in the book are represented as individuals on the members on the wheel and then the spokes that some of them have like whether they're tradesmen or musicians, photographers, we we are everywhere and, and Wall Street dead ahead, Deb Solomon, that's how you and I met. It's inclusive and encompassing and everybody's represented and it provides the uh, commercial aspect by linking everybody. Beautiful. No, it's, know? it's the ever-breathing community and I mean I've been enjoying it. I know I kind of popped on a little early but i love um, your presence on there it's great you talk going your visits to the flea market and a lot of stuff that's all exactly what we're looking for is to create a social network there's no advertising on it there's no we try to limit the amount of politics really if you there's a place for politics we'll create a politics group you know everybody right. can go over there and talk about politics and it said we're the administrators of it we want to continue to build it and it's with and I, we're going to build a digital version of the Grateful Dead family on. We're going to continue it. We're going to pick yeah. up the story of the Grateful Dead family on New Year's Eve 8990 in a digital format online, eventually print books from that, that if, if we decide to do that, and um, continue the story of the Grateful Dead and the family in ad finitum forever, just like the music. So it'll always be a permanent place in cyberspace for family members and fans to leave stories that'll be archived and kept so that will be more first-person accounts of our history. And I think that there's no, no more valuable gift we can leave to the future generations that will be administering this site and adding to it than more of us. I want to go around with a video camera this next year and do these appearances in various cities around the country and little towns and villages and whatever. I just got a new car, an Isuzu Rodeo that I could camp out in and stuff, a four-wheel drive. And, um, yeah, I got to give it a good name. It's red. And, uh, tell people about this and connect our community. And the wheel, I say, tell people the wheel is the well for the 21st century. This is a continuation of the place that used to exist for maybe, I think it still does exist, the well. It's a unique place and it, we're going to be building this for the rest of my life and, and, and then the children will take over and the children's children. Yeah, and I love that we wanted to do this podcast and you wanted to kind of put it out here on uh, what would have been Jerry Garcia's 75th birthday because, you know, you were saying yeah. it's, it's a gift. It's a gift to the community. It's a gift to the family. And, um, you know, this podcast is going to air on August 1st. Yeah. We're getting it together. And the fans, Susanna Millman, who's a spoke on the wheel and a family member. So some people, you'll, you'll find them in both places. You'll find them as spokes on the wheel and you'll find them as individuals and that's what I'm encouraging everybody to do. If you've got something that you want to put up there as a spoke, if you're a plumber or an electrician or a, or a Wall, Street, Wall Street deadhead already going to be a spoke, you know. Let's put it up there, but everybody have a personal page where we just talk about our lives and the things that we do and the things that interest us and tell our stories about how we got here and, you know, share all that and then have it be archived and searchable and, and, and available for you if you want to print out you know, make your own book if you want to. We'll work with one of the companies that does that sort of thing. But it's going to be friendly for our community to share. 
no community that is friendlier than the Grateful Dead family and extended family. So that uh, you just uh, you get warm and fuzzies just you know being in the presence. So uh, that makes sense. Most uh, people tell me that's what attracted them to the Grateful Dead was just the, the the community. The thing that really made them feel like they wanted to follow the Grateful Dead, they loved the music because the music's great, but it was the community that gets brought up more than the music sometimes. If you ask, if you ask somebody, what, what is it about the Grateful Dead that you like, that you like the most? And they'll say, the community. <laughs> you know, because yeah, that's obvious. The music's great. So no, it's just cool. that's something special that, you know, something that's uh, that's indescribable. It's something that's indescribable. It's unique, too. Yeah. The sociologists yeah. say that it's unique, so I think that's pretty cool. Well, let's go hear it. I want to hear the wheels. So, because uh, I like to talk and then play music and then talk and then play music, because to your point exactly just now, it is all about the community and the music. So that way, if we can, like, you know, share and talk and then we get to hear some of the music, to me, that was like, that's everything, you know, we've got to pull it all together. So we're going to, we're going to shoot back to um, the Warfield. We're going to go back to 1980 and uh, found a great version of the wheel. And this was on October 3rd, 1980. So uh so everybody enjoy and then we're going to be back with a couple more songs and a and a little more chat. All right, cool.
Well, back from listening to The Wheel, and, uh, you know, the specific date, Gerilyn and I were talking, is uh, October 3rd, a, 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 an auspicious day, right? Yes, it's John Perry Barlow's birthday. I bet that he was at that gig. I'll have to ask him, because that, that sounds like that's the Warfield run. I think that run was in October of yeah. 1980, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Barlow was there. You know, I would imagine he wouldn't miss it for the world, man. A big run of the work. So that was, like I said, that was the most fun of all. It's like we started to feel like we had a real job. <laughs> well, I just, you know, I told one night I was talking to the guys. They go, you know what? I feel like we're we're on Broadway. You know, we're doing a Broadway show because we go down to the theater every night. You know, and do a show. You know, this is pretty cool. You know, and it started to be attractive to them to create. That's kind of what started that movement to have a Grateful Dead museum or a, like a thing in San Francisco. Remember, there was a couple of times they raised money to do a Terrapin Station or something, the big deal. They were going to build something, and they researched it downtown and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so that was a whole other story. So we'll, talk, <laughs> we'll talk about that. Like sometimes Barlow refers to the Grateful Dead as the storehouse of broken dreams because of so many times we've done these, like, we've got these utopian ideas. There was a, uh, for a number of years, the band owned a bunch of property out in Nicosia that was called Dead Patch. And that was going to be the ultimate Grateful Dead commune spot or whatever. And uh, they, that got sold somewhere along the way. But anyway, I digress. About, yeah, so we're in the 80s, and uh, I'm, I'm just, you know, kind of navigating the podcast around some of the songs. So you had mentioned the book and the, and the pictures and, and uh, getting the, uh, the baby pictures. But, you know, when I was poking around on the Internet looking for some songs and some dates, came up with October 1st, 1989, which is, you know, the date of your book release. And then I had to laugh because the song that was on that set list was The Women Are Smarter. And, and you and I have uh, have had a laugh or two about, about the song and um, just how very true it is to yeah. life. Yes, I would say yeah. to us, but I'm going to say just in life. But um, it, it brought me back to, uh, yeah, 1989, October 1st. So I just, you know, wanted just to ask a little bit about that and, you know, how that felt and yeah, giving birth to the book and um, what, you yeah. know, what was going on at that time. Well, let's see. Um, I was going to say, I'm grateful that office, there's a little a card up on the, where the cubbies are, where everybody gets their mail. There's like a big wall with a bunch of slots in it. And it says, you want to talk to the man in charge or the woman who knows what's going on. So anyway, that's, I always thought that was, you know, the women are smarter. But uh, And nobody disputed it. Nobody said, hey, hey, who put this up? They didn't try to take it down. They knew what was true. Most of the women always know what's going on around them. But anyway, um, the book, okay, it was pretty exciting. And I got to go to bookstores and meet everybody's family. It was amazing. It was a pretty exciting time, actually, in my life, holding that book, finished book in my hand. And I got a, I think I was in my contract, I got 100 free copies. So that's the first thing that happened was the, the free copies that I think before it hit, it hit the bookstores in October. I didn't start doing book signings until early November or maybe maybe late October, but they want to make sure it was in all the stores before the holidays. So that's why they do an October release. But that's when they sent me around places farther than, you know, my local stuff. And uh, it was pretty exciting meeting everybody's family that Christmas season. Um, so when uh, you, you know, say families, gotta, it was people would come oh, in you know, with their like, families? No, I do book signings and they go, I got my, this is for my brother, this is for my cousin, it's for my uncle, my daughter's friend, my, you know, I mean, everybody, I started telling them, yeah, I'm starting to realize that there is a deadhead in every family. 
just it seemed oh, like I got I met every version of every relative or friend or whatever that you can possibly come up with to uh you know I made Christmas shopping real easy for the deadhead community that year a lot of people got the book that year I, I think Warner Bros. Warner Books <laughs> Warner Books made 75,000 copies initially hardcover and they got so many pre-orders that they immediately went back and printed it up 20,000 more of them so the first printing was 95,000 books and it sold out really quickly and the second printing was another 20,000 books and another 20,000 books so it went into um, two printings in the paper in the hardcover and then it came out I wanted to release it at the same time at paperback but they won't do that in the traditional world so but so the hardcovers sold out pretty much in the first year and that was a that was 105,000 of the hardcover that got sold right off the bat and then they brought it out in paperback and now it's a fourth fourth printing of paperback they returned the rights to me so I'm going to republish the book because all this new material that we're adding to it right now there's going to be a second edition of the Grateful Dead Family album that will include the material from the original book, and we can add more stuff from you know that I'm going to round up from everybody. I think I'll probably make a run of them just the way it is, a second uh, run of the original book just the way it is, and then we're going to start printing copies with added material. So, and we're like I said, we're going to build the website out so that we have we start creating the rest of the history. We only got the first 25 years of the Grateful Dead in the family album, in the original family album. And I never in 1989 imagined that I would have the opportunity to make the book bigger. I did I did try right before Jerry died in 1995, I was trying to get Warner Brothers to create on the honor of the 30th anniversary of the Grateful Dead. I was trying to get them to release a 30th anniversary edition that would include a bunch of new material but they wouldn't do it because they said my book sold really well. And then Jerry died to compromise and would quiet me down. They printed up a special edition, of, I think about 75,000 uh, paperbacks in July of 1995. And then Jerry died the next month and those books flew off the shelf. I sold every one of them like immediately oh, after bet. Jerry died. Yeah, it was amazing. I so, bet. and it still sells. The, the few copies that I have left from, they, when they went out of print, Warner sold me all the existing copies, and so I've been buying up the existing copies of my book, and now I have people looking for copies of my book, like you found it at a flea market. I have a friend uh, that goes around and buys copies for me, and then he sends them to me to resell. I'm going to reprint it sometime soon. Well, I'm keeping anyway. my copy. No, I'm keeping my oh, copy. Oh, yeah, I would. Oh, I would. <laughs> I think I'd say, you know, bring that along. and look. You, you should, Are you going to go to Deb Solomon's event in October? I'm certainly planning on it. Oh, good. That. Well, yes, you should bring absolutely. your copy of the book so we can get everybody to sign it. Susanna will be there, and Rosie will be there, and I will be there. And uh, Don, I'm trying to get Dante to go, and he's the biggest star as anybody. He helped create that book in the first place, and now he's creating this whole digital thing. I mean, I feel so blessed that I have the same guy who helped me and Alan Trist put the book together in the first place is now helping me put all this stuff together. It's amazing. And he's a highly skilled technical guy. And I, you've talked to him. And I can't wait for you guys to meet him. I'm hoping that he will come out to New York in October. Well, I am really looking forward to the event. And I'm going to do everything possible to get there. Yeah, I mean, you know, behind every great man is a great woman. So let's uh, let's go back to the release date of October 1st, 1989, when the, the book came into the world at the same time, the Grateful Dead were playing at Shoreline, stomping grounds, the women are smarter. So uh, let's, uh, let's go back and, and, and hear a little more music. 
Back from listening to The Women Are Smarter in 1989, and you chose to do this podcast on August 1st, 2017, which would have been Jerry Garcia's 75th birthday. So, you know, let's stories about uh, about Jerry. The other day it occurred to me that what I, I've been in the before, how, what Jerry would think about what we're doing with the social network and I think how he would really like to, you know, we're connecting everybody because one of the things that everybody will probably hear across the board about Jerry is how inclusive he was, how available he was to talk to people and, and be a friend and, and just he never really liked being tagged as a leader of the Grateful Dead or any kind of, you know, leader of anything for any reason, but just by virtue of the kind of person he was and the fact that he would take the initiative to make things happen, he was a born leader. He just yeah. didn't have a choice about it. It was something that something that he was, whether he liked it or not. He was that guy. And uh, in my life with him, he was always that guy, the guy that would step up and take care of things when everybody would sit around bullshitting about it or talking about it. Round Robin, you know, I don't know, what's Billy think? What's Bobby think? Well, if it's okay with Mickey, it's okay with me. Well, did you talk to Phil yet? <laughs> and then, you know, finally Jerry would go, Hey, here's what we're gonna do, and they go, "Oh, okay, you know, that'd be that." That's you know, that's just because he was that kind of guy. He was a Leo. He was a leader, and he was a really amazing human being. He was a, a real mensch. Garcia was a, seriously a mensch, and, and really was so quietly behind the scenes, making so many cool things happen for people that you know, not really well known, or or you know, making a big deal about who they were, but just people. He had all kinds of interesting regular friends and people that in the community. The hot dog guy. Uh, he was friends with the guy at the pawn shop. Big Steve thought that when, I, when when Greg showed up at Jerry's viewing, Big Steve thought that he the Garcia pawned something and that he owed Greg money. And it was, <laughs> it was you know, and so and I, it was like no, no, no. Jerry would come to my shop and and buy things for people he loved. He would shop at Greg's pawn shop, and he was really good buddies with Greg. You know, <laughs> and, I, and it was really funny. You know, the people that, that came out of the woodwork, um, you know, just regular people in the community that he had interacted with. And uh, he was, you know, in the early days, anybody could talk to Jerry. It was only, you know, after they got kind of too well known after the '80s, and I mean, it was always kind of like that. People. One time we were in New York in the '70s, and Jackson, it was when Rex Jackson was still alive. And he had decided that the limousines attracted too much attention and they were kind of too pretentious or whatever. So he started transporting the band around. We were in New York City, too, at this particular moment. He started transporting everybody around in these Winnebago's. <laughs> and so one day, when they were pulling away from some hotel or something, and some guy jumped on the ladder on the back of the Winnebago <laughs> and came up on top and he was going... Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. So, I mean, it must have been hard to be Garcia when people cared, loved to do that much. And I think that that was part of what led him to be kind of more unavailable as the years went on. He just got overwhelmed about being that guy. But, man, I wish he would have lived to be 75. I can't believe that he's been gone this long. He was in his 50s when he left us. 
and uh, that was just way too soon, you know. But he sure, he sure, uh, you know, blazed a big path and left an amazing legacy of not just the music, but of the kindness and the things that he represented and the way he behaved and the way he welcomed people and made them feel. And I think that was part of what was transmitted from the stage, too, was that understanding and the compassion that he had for people and the kindness. Absolutely. He was a truly kind guy. No, you I know? mean, it's, um, it, no, it, com- it comes through. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. I think of, uh, you know, without love and the dream, it'll never come true. And there was just oh, so yeah. much love, you know, there was so much love that went back and forth. Some of the mottos I use, one of the things I have all these little kind of, you know, lyrics like that, that just are templates for my life, you know, and that's one of them. And, and also from Run for the Roses, the all good things and all good time, because, um, it's taken a lot. It took a long time to put the book together, but it was built to last, and it's still here and and growing. And I want this new thing to be the same sort of thing. That I'm creating something that will be there forever and be something that's significant in our community and helpful. It's a good thing, you know, for our history, for tracking our history, and for connecting us and keeping us connected. I think that's important. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm I'm. Couldn't be more excited about it. Absolutely. Well, we that brings to the last song pick. So, I mean, you know, the, with those lyrics and, and those words and that that sentiment, um, we uh, you you picked "Run for the Roses." You said, uh, "Could you, yeah. could we grab a copy of that?" So, uh, so so we did because you know we want to we want to hear everything that uh, everything that is that is meaningful. So so let's play "Run for the Roses" and then we'll come back and just do a quick little sign off and goodbye. Thank you.
And, uh, you know, you know, the, obviously the significance of the day um, of August 1st we talked about. And today's significant because you're welcoming the public onto the wheel. So, you know, tell everyone a little bit about, you know, where to find where to find the wheel and um, just the early plans. Okay. Well, um, we've been working on it now pretty hard since Donald Trump became president. I, de- <laughs> I decided that it was critically important. That, you know, instead of continuing to build the history of the band, we had to stop focusing on that and we had to get the social network up and happening. I just feel it's critically important at this juncture that we have a social network of our own that represents the Grateful Dead community within, in and among ourselves. And so when I found out that August 1st was Jerry's 75th birthday, I thought the significance of it was that I should actually make this available to the public. It doesn't have everybody in the family album on it by any stretch of the imagination, but on any given day that you check in there, once you join up and become a member of the wheel as one of the fans, uh, you never know on any given day who's going to be, you'll be seeing there next, you know. And little by little, I'm getting everybody signed up. I've talked to everybody in the Grateful Dead family that's still around about this project for the last couple of years, and they're all really excited about being part of it. And little by little, we're getting on there. So, But I thought it's important that we pay tribute to Jerry by making it available to the public on his 75th birthday. The link to it is www.thegdwheel.com. Com, as if to say the Grateful Dead Wheel. So the gdwheel.com. So let's make it pretty simple. We had a big vote and a consensus, and that's what got voted to be the, the coordinates because it's pretty simple. So Very go simple. there. Go there. Join up. If you have any problem, you can send a message to a guy named Dante Anderson who's on there, and he'll take care of it. We're still kind of in a beta mode, but I just think it's important that we open it up to the public to, on this day. I want to give this to the fans in honor of Jerry and the 75th anniversary of his birth and the gift that we were given when Garcia came to join us. I'm sorry that he's not here to celebrate with us, and I think he would love the wheel. I think I think this is a perfect day to launch it. So that's uh, that's what's going on. Okay. That's it. At some point, you got to just, you know, you got to just go, right? You just, you pick yeah, the exactly. day, you gotta go pull, with the day, you just pull go. The trigger. Part yeah, of, yeah. pull the trigger. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, well, Susanna Millman, who's one of our spokes on the wheel, she already leaked it in her newsletter. So 
the people that I call the accidental beta testers <laughs> have been showing up <laughs> for the last few weeks. And Sam, when I gave Sam the coordinators, he thought he was supposed to share it with people too. So there's there's a, there's quite a few deadheads on there already, and uh, they're they're pretty they're pretty neat people. And we're gonna get this conversation started. You're on there. Yeah, my friend David J. Peebler's on there, and he's great. He put up a post about this wristwatch that he found because he's been sick and he was bored, and he found this old wristwatch. <laughs> and Dante said, what's that got to do with the dead, Grateful Dead? And I said, nothing, but it's about David, you know, and it doesn't have to be all about the Grateful Dead. It could be about anything, just like Facebook. It's about anything, you know. And But the special thing about it is that we're focusing on making it a place where you can find out anything you want to. I'm going to have links. There'll be spokes to everything. This is the goal. And I really, I know it's ambitious, but I think we can do it. And we've got a volunteer army of deadheads out there that want to help us build this thing and make something built to last. And uh, so we're going to create a place where you'll be able to find everything about the Grateful Dead in one central place. That's the goal for part of it. And the other goal is to leave more history of ourselves there and to build up something, like I said, that will go on for generations and be a real representative of, of our footprint on Earth here, you know? So I'm pretty excited about it. I look forward to seeing everybody out there this next year. I'm going to be Absolutely. at Locken. Yeah, I'm going to be at Locken this year. I will be at the Locken Festival, and I'll probably be hanging out in the Relics booth lot because Pete Shapiro invited me to be there, and I'll probably be hanging out with Sam in his booth a little bit. And, uh, you know, because I don't really feel like holding down a booth of my own. So I'm just going to be yeah. a floater. I'll be floating around Locken. <laughs> well, everybody go look for Gerilyn floating around Locken. Talking about the project and gathering stories. And I like I said, I'm going to try to have a video camera with me so I can videotape people. And I'm going to do a little, I'm going to have these things, I hope, RV or whatever I got there. They're like giant cell phones. And I'll be able to throw up pages of the book and, like, do little, we can, like, hang out and stuff after the party, you know, after the gigs and whatnot. So I'm pretty excited. I'm really excited about camping. It's going to be fun. Oh, that's so fun. I wish I could go, but it's um, it's sadly not in the cards this year. I've um, never been. I've I've always heard about it. I've never been. I am going to have a fallback motel nearby in case camping becomes too rugged for my disabled old self. (laughs) <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm sure if I have a comfortable RV, I'll just be fine. Absolutely. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. Again, it's been uh, something we've been talking about for a while, and we were just waiting for, you know, the right time. And, and the right time is today, and the right time is the first for the release. And I do have to say, um, for anybody who's picked up on this in the background, I mean, Geraldine and I could easily talk for three hours. So we are cutting this pretty pretty close for you guys. And the, and the little dog started barking in the back. So... While my podcasting and editing <laughs> skills have improved, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get the little ladies out. So my apologies to listeners who hear a faint dog barking. Gerilyn and I, we just talk longer than they had. So, uh, right. so cool. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, All right. You and, too, honey. And we'll, we'll be in touch. Bye. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Bye-bye. Welcome back. 
Just stranger stopping strangers. Hi, Stacey. Good to be talking with you again. You know, you are my first returning guest. This is uh, this is sets a precedence. You're my first person I've said welcome wow, back to. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. Well, I appreciate your uh, you you checking back in, and you know this podcast is going out on Tuesday, August first, which would have been Jerry Garcia's seventy fifth birthday, and um, and yeah, I wanted to, to to reach out to some people who loved him and and ask mm-hmm. um, a story. So you know, just yeah, it's Jerry's birthday. Share share you know most memorable, meaningful you know thoughts and and what you'd want to share. Well, my most my most meaningful with Jerry was uh, his walking me down the aisle when I got married to Dennis McNally uh, in 1985. It was appropriate for Jerry to do this uh, because he was sort of our matchmaker. He said to me, hey man, you and McNally ought to get together, which is just out of the blue one day. I knew him socially because I was friends with Rock and Nikki Scully. And So since my dad had died when I was young and my surrogate dad was out of the country, oh, and also Jerry's suggestion worked out. (laughs) (laughs) So Dennis and I were getting married and still are. So so I I sent a letter personally with a friend to – to Denver, the band I believe was was at uh, was at Red Rocks, and I sent a friend to hand deliver a letter, and my friend did this, uh, who was not a deadhead, you know, and he had a nice chat with Jerry, and you know, he was just doing a favor for his friend, and it wasn't a deadhead thing, so that was probably a refreshing exchange for Jerry. Yeah, I told him he could walk on water because Dennis and I were walking were walking down the aisle. Uh, uh, Dennis and I were getting married at a club called the Oasis, and what would be the aisle was over a covered swimming pool. So, you know, he thought that was weird enough to, to do it, and um, <laughs> he was very sweet in doing it. He gave Dennis the caveat that, listen, man, I'll do this, but uh, I just want you to know that the weddings that I've been involved with haven't worked out so well. I guess we're the exception that uh, proves the rule or, or, or something. But uh, Jerry was, you know, always so generous of, of spirit. I will also add that throughout the years, even though he did not like his picture being taken, he jokingly called photographers parasites. Anytime he noticed me, either on the side of the stage or in the photo pit, he would give me the smile, you know, and 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 that and that was really sweet. And he always gave us the photographers what what we wanted, no matter how he felt about having his picture taken, which is a real example of the generosity of spirit. Oh, absolutely. And as somebody who is, you know, looks at the photography and uh, clings to, you know, that smile and those images, you know, we're just so fortunate, you know, all of the generations that he, you know, that he shared that because uh-huh. uh-huh. that's what we have, you know, and that there's nothing that's more spectacular than that smile. You know, it's, it's that's so right. sweet. It was just so sweet and warm. That is probably, you know, the one of the most life-changing memories that I could imagine. And, yes, um, really yeah, life-changing. Really <laughs> life-changing, pretty spectacular. Jerry touched people in a lot of ways, but uh, but introducing you to your love 30-some-odd years later is, um, you know, that's a real game-changer. 
A real, real game changer. Yeah, he changed the nature of our relationship. Okay, Dick Rodfaller had brought uh, Dennis over to my house because we lived five blocks from each other. And I was and I was friends with Dick. He was my initial entree into the Grateful Dead, then Rock and Nicky, and then uh, and Wavy at the same time. Also, all of them. But I really appreciated my friendship with Dennis. And of course, I was concerned that you know getting into a romantic relationship might finish our friendship. But we've pretty much worked it out over the years, so it's it's all good. Very good. Well, I, I I don't know either of you well, but what I know, you know, are just is, is wonderful. So, it's it's good to know two people that you that you know separately that are together, and it all makes sense, you know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Well, thank you so much for for checking in, and I'm sure everybody is enjoying hearing uh, your memories, and um and I hope to see you soon, and you know, lots of love. Happy birthday, Jerry. Happy Thanks, birthday, Jerry. Stacey. Okay. If my words did glow With the gold of sunshine And my tunes were played On the harp on the strung Would you hear my voice Come through the music Would you hold Well, Sam Cutler, welcome to Strangers Stopping Strangers. Thank you so much for joining on this very special episode. Well, thank you for having me. And it's uh, it's a wonderful time to be here and uh, to think of Jerry and to remember Jerry. And um, I was thinking about what I was going to say about him. And I I remember I was very fortunate immediately after Altamont to be staying with Jerry and Mountain Go in their house. And uh, they kind of taken me in and sheltered me from the storm. And at that time, um, um, Jerry was uh, learning to play pedal steel guitar, and it was quite fascinating to watch him do it. He lived. He uh, was in a little room, one of the f- two small front rooms in their house, and uh, he'd had the TV on and uh, no sound on the TV, and he'd be wearing headphones. They had this incredibly complex instrument, the pedal steel guitar in front of him. I would sit there for hour after hour after hour, teaching himself uh, how to, you know, play the guitar, how to master the guitar. I mean, literally 10, 12 hours a day. Mountain girls sometimes would go in and take him a plate of food. The plate of food would sit beside him, he'd ignore it, and he'd just keep going. He had the most unbelievable focused dedication the focused dedication of a Zen master in many ways. He was quite an extraordinary person when it came to mastering an instrument. And uh, of all the guitar players that I've worked with over the years, Jerry certainly was uh, one of the, one of the most special and uh, a lovely person. And it's uh, it's hard to remember him without kind of choking up in some respects. Well, I can imagine. I was never fortunate to meet him, but I was fortunate enough to hear him play, and um, so so beautiful, so distinctive. His soul came yeah. out. You know, you could always hear if it was Jerry's guitar. It, it, it has a, its own voice. Well, that's part. You know, part and parcel of becoming a great guitar player is to develop a language for the guitar that is exclusively your own. 
especially yours. It's a bit like being a writer, you know. You need to write and discover your own voice. You need to, when you're playing the guitar, you need to discover the way that you play it that's uh, uniquely yours. Jerry certainly did that. It's a hand-me-down The thoughts are broken Perhaps they're better Left unsung I don't know Don't really care Let there be songs To fill the air Dennis, welcome to Strangers Stopping Strangers. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to, to get to talk to you. And, you know, today being August 1st, 2017, what would have been Jerry Garcia's 75th birthday. Really, I want to hear something from you. You know, I, I'm sure they're so hard to isolate just one memory or thought, but um, but let's uh, let's let's give it a go. I'll tell you the most extravagant compliment he ever paid me, which wasn't wasn't the way it, that might sound at first. So, so, but let me give you the back backdrop. So, you know, grateful they put out uh, in the dark and touch of gray. And in the Bay Area at this time, in the 80s, uh, there was a thing called the Bammies, uh, Bay Area Music Awards, uh, which was a, you know, pint-sized version of the Grammys for the Bay Area. And at the time, there was a big enough recording industry in the Bay Area, and a lot of bands, you know, a lot of very successful bands on a net nationwide basis, so that it was, a, you know, it was a fairly big deal. And... Uh, the readers of the music magazine, which was called BAM, would vote. Um, anyway, so it was fairly obvious that the Grateful Dead, after all these years, had finally had this big commercial success, and they were going to get a lot of attention. And I got a phone call, because this was promo, and not necessarily a regular gig, and not a paid gig. Um, so it ended up being pretty much in my lap, in a lot of ways. And I got a phone call from them saying, well, you know, you won everything. I guess the first call was, well, we'd like you to um, to play at the Bammies. And I said, well, you know, I'll tell the band. Um, how many awards did we win? And it was all supposed to be an honest count and all that. And I said, believe me, I am not going to recommend to the band that they go uh, present themselves unless I know in advance that they want a bunch because, you know, I'm not sure. setting them up for embarrassment. <laughs> you know, this is not, you know, that's not the way this game is played. Uh, they said, oh, no, 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 it's, you know, you want everything. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> it's a slam um, dunk. It's done. It's a slam dunk. I said, fine, we'll, we'll talk about it. And and I bring it to the band, and, you know, uh, unanimously go, oh, yeah, sure, okay, why not? Except for Jerry. Jerry, because the implicitly this vote, this, you know, you guys win and you guys lose, was competition. And, you know, to Jerry, the idea didn't even process. You will notice that he did not go to the Hall, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. For just that reason. Wow. And I responded at the time. I said, look, you know, I take your point, but you should also look at it that this is your peers uh, in the music business, uh, you know, and would like to congratulate you on success. You know, it's called Noblesse Oblige. So uh, how about, you know, loosen up a little? And he went, um, well, all right. So... We had various uh, excitements. M Mickey Hart had, had the brilliant idea of, you know, this is a night where everybody got to pretend to be an adult and they wore black tie and the, the ladies all got to, you know, wear their, you know, the best stuff. And 
Mickey decides that the appropriate way to open this show is with this performance artist he's now enthusiastic about at, the, at this time, named Not Human, G-N-O-T-T, Human, who liked to take a chainsaw and slice through oil drums. Ooh. And it took a great deal of effort to convince him that this was... Actually, it never did convince him it was a bad idea. The only thing we said was, well, it'll take an extra $25,000 just in amps to be able to support the sound system. Uh, are you prepared to pay for that? Because, you know, the Bammies are not. And he went, eh, never mind. So we ended up having a samba line, which was, a, you know, a bunch of beautiful women in, in wearing not very much drumming, you know, so, you know, if it was... I'm Mickey. sure that and worked fact, for Mickey just fine, right? It, it worked for Mickey just fine, and it worked house. for everybody else, too, because it was, you know, it was a great way to, you know, kick off the show. So, as I say, Jerry did not really want to do this. And my guts were in a knot, because, you know, I was the one that was going to have to announce or tell people, you know, uh, Jerry decided at the last minute not to come. Because, to me, there was a very real possibility. And I'm standing on the, the loading dock of the venue... Sure enough, finally, the, his van pulls up. Everybody else has, has come. And um, he gets out, showing a distinct lack of enthusiasm, and looks me in the eye, and he says, Man, I just couldn't figure out how to leave you holding the bag. <laughs> and I looked at him, and in my most sincere voice, because I truly meant it, I just said, Thank you. <laughs> Good thinking. <laughs> Now, I'm, and, and the other reason, by the way, that, that he was really cranky was not so much that um, what I said, but it was also the fact was because there were like 20 acts, you had to play on a standard amp, right? I don't know when the last time had been that Jerry had played on, a, a, on an equipment setup that wasn't his, uh, but, you know, this idea didn't thrill him, and that was part of it. But in the end, uh, he did play, and they, uh, it was the Grateful News. It was uh, all the members of, I think, all the members of the Grateful Dead and um, many people from Huey Lewis and the News. Yeah. And uh, Huey was blowing some really nice harp on uh, school, Good Morning Little Schoolgirl, and I forget what else uh, played, but, you know, it was fun. And in the end, um, after that was done and he, he stopped worrying about it and we had to do this photo session... Uh, he was, you know, he was fairly relaxed. And, you know, even though photos were not, again, post photos were not his thing, uh, he was willing to do it. And so we're getting him with Bill and, and all that. And finally, fo the photographer says, could I have a picture with Jerry? And that's when I snapped. Mm -hmm. And I, I hissed. I, I, and he's, he's a dear friend, and, and we've been buddies ever since. But he reminds me pretty regularly that I was hissing at him. You fucking owe me. Are, are we allowed to curse on your uh, what? Uh, you are podcast? allowed to curse. Absolutely, okay. I encourage it. <laughs> and I was repeatedly just said, I mean, you know, this this I need right on top of everything else. And I, Jerry's still in a decent mood, and I got to add, okay, one more, Jerry. Uh, but we got through that, and uh, the the and the, the wonderful thing about that night, of course, is it was you know everybody else had a ball, uh, except me and Jerry. Jerry was like ambivalent, and I was worried. Suzanne and I, as a matter of fact, talk about it in her in her photo book, uh, because it was you know she was having this wonderful time. The whole family was there. You have all the office staff, and you have their children. And it was just you know it was a really neat scene. The uh, the crew didn't have to work, but you know they were there obviously, and and uh, Healy mixed. But anyway, it was just it was, you know it was this great scene, and and it's, and it's a good party. Uh, but it, uh, it as I say, there was. Not all of us 
had as good a time as everybody else. But there's Jerry, generous in spirit, you know, making yep. it happen for everyone else. And, you know, the other thing I extrapolate from the story is so many musicians get into music for the award. And, gosh, 25 years into it, 30 years into it, you know, when the award comes around, I mean, that's it's it's not what it's for. But, hey, have a good time, you know, drink at the booze, get dressed up, go have a party and and it sounds to me like Jerry wasn't his thing, but he, you know, he took one for the team for everyone he else. He took one for the team, you know. No, he he appreciated yeah, that it was a way of uh, not only the peers, but you know, just the fans. You know, it was it was a night for the fans as much as anything else. And and um, you know, he he put up with the uh, aggravation, but um, I got to say, he was just he did care about the relationship with Deadheads. It's one of the reasons why he did interviews that uh, you know didn't necessarily have to be done. This is pre-internet, and it was a way of relating to to the Deadheads, and he you know he cared about that. So yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate you calling in on this Sunday morning, and and I know everyone's going to enjoy you know hearing the the, the bonus stories, and um, Jerry will be in everyone's hearts, you know, especially. Especially today and uh, and through the week, and it's a real milestone. And I I really appreciate your uh, your time and your love. My pleasure. It, you know, I, there's not much for Jerry I wouldn't do. So, okay. you take care. All right, you too. Bye. All right. Bye bye. Bye. When there is no pebble tossed. Nor wind to blow, reach out your hand. If your cup be empty, if your cup is full, may it be again, let it be known. There is a fountain that was not made. By the hands of men There is a road No simple highway Between the dawn And the dark of night And if you go No one may follow That path is for your steps alone Ripple in still water When there is no pebble tossed No wind to blow You choose To lead must follow But if you fall, you fall alone If you should stand Then who's to guide you? If I knew the way I would take you home La da 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 La da 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 da
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.